Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get to today's epic film, and I mean that in pretty much any way that I can, Andre Rubliev we are going to bring you some recommendations for your week. Uh, Ian, who would like to go first this week? Well, I think uh, if I remember right, off mic, we both said we have TV shows, right? Indeed. All right. So uh, I think mine is probably as far removed tonally as you can from Andre Rublev. So I think I'll, uh, I think I'll go first if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. All right. So uh, this week... I have Barry, the HBO half-hour, very, very dark comedy with uh, Bill Hader. It was created by Bill Hader and uh, Alec Berg. Alec Berg, uh, his resume is quite impressive. He was a producer on Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, wrote for both Curb Your Enthusiasm and uh, Silicon Valley, which I haven't seen, but I hear is very good. Yeah, me too. Um, This features a great supporting cast. You've got Stephen Root. Uh, Anthony Carrigan, Sarah Goldberg, and Henry Winkler, who, by the way, this he's still got it, man. Like, deep down inside, that that great, cheeky character actor that was the Fonz, it's, it's still in there, and he's still just an absolute ton of fun to watch. So Barry is this guy, he's a, um, a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, and now he works for Stephen Root, who, as you go through the series, you find out Stephen Root helped him get out of a whole mess of trouble, and now he, he works for, for Stephen Root as a hitman. Uh, one of the jobs takes him to L.A., and while in L.A., one of the uh, targets that he's supposed to take out is a struggling actor, and he ends up falling into the wor- world of this small uh, theater class, which is being run by Henry Winkler's character, who has, you know, he'd never let go of the aspiration that, hey, maybe he can make it in Hollywood one day, even though, you know, he's a guy that's in his 60s now. Um, there's a lot in there that I think you would really appreciate as, as a, a, an actor and as somebody who has a, a, a strong love of the theater. What I really love about this acting troupe is that the theater really isn't their goal. They all want to be TV and, and film actors. And what absolutely cracks me up are some little in-jokes like he gives, uh, Henry Winkler gives, uh, the Barry character, uh, a monologue that he has to do. Well, it's a monologue from Glengarry Glen Ross, but he doesn't choose one that's in the play. He chooses the Alec Baldwin one, which isn't in the play. It was written specifically <laughs> for the movie. So there's a lot of little in-jokes like that that theater and film people will really love. But the tone of this thing is an absolute roller coaster. You will be laughing your ass off one second and then in the same scene, just shocked and horrified. It's one of the best balances of, of comedy and drama I've ever seen. And I think it's HBO's best half-hour show, certainly within the last 10 years or so. Like, right. Hater knocks it out of the park. I've I've never been a big SNL fan, but I've always had respect for certain cast members like Hater and uh, Kate McKinnon, Tina Fey, people like that. Uh, he has really come into his own with this show and proved that he's not only a great comedian but a fantastic writer and he's been nominated as a director on an episode or two as well at the the emmys 
Oh, great. Yeah. I I mean, it's definitely a show that I am very much aware of. And I mean, you know, we did. Well, I'll get into my uh, recommendation here in a second. But, you know, we've been avoiding any kind of TV show for a while just because of the of the commitment effort it can take and it can be hard to jump back into it the next night or whatever but um it it does seem like it's right up my alley and so that that's gonna have to be something I I cross that threshold of pretty soon oh I think I think Melissa would enjoy it as well both of you with your your theater backgrounds and it's it's super short uh eight eight episodes each eight half hour episodes so there's only 16 of them at the moment and Unfortunately, in the the midst of several states still being in shutdown at the time that we're recording this, who knows when we're going to get back to production on season three and finally get another season of that. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Um, So uh, my recommendation is actually a pick that um, because of, of quarantine came out sooner than it was supposed to because I think ESPN was ready to jump on getting some viewers. And that is the... Um, the documentary miniseries *The Last Dance*. Uh, it follows the Chicago Bulls in their um, their run for a sixth championship, their second three-peat. And uh, this this film crew got unprecedented access to the Bulls in that sixth season. Um, and so, what's great is that the documentary it follows the Bulls um, very closely through that sixth season. But they use this this great graphic of a timeline, and it really follows Jordan's career from being a high schooler even all the way through college to getting drafted by the Bulls through the shitty seasons and through the good seasons. And um, it is it is fascinating because I I grew up watching all sports like before before I kind of faded away from watching all the sports on TV and and basically just now stick to football um, as a kid and as a middle schooler if it was if it was a sport and it was on TV, I was watching it. And back when we actually had the Supersonics and we had a good team with Gary Payton and Sean Kemp, Bull, uh, the Bulls with Jordan and Pippen and Steve Kerr and Tony Kukoc and Dennis Rodman, I mean, they were the team. And being only like 8 or 9, 10, 11 when, when, this, when these teams were great, I don't know all the backstory stuff. I don't even know what the controversies surrounding anything might be. And so this was really enlightening. Really well done. Jordan, um, I, I'd, I'd heard from other people that, you know, Jordan kind of comes across as an asshole. Maybe, but if he wasn't as good as he was, he would be an asshole. But because he is as good as he is, he's just he's just speaking it like it is. I don't know. There's just something about his confidence and the way that he was able to back it up on the court. It's, it's, in, it's incredible. And despite other players feelings about him the respect that's still given to him i don't know and 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 here's what i say and this is why it's definitely my recommend melissa who is not a a basketball fan who never really watched it or, or cared she who who knows who jordan is but doesn't really you know find that much interest in him was riveted by it so i think even if you're not a basketball fan you know who jordan is and to kind of see what has what happened in his life? Like there were things that happened to him that I didn't, I wasn't even aware of. And um, as as something as educational and enlightening, but also just entertaining, I I cannot recommend this enough. It's ten one hour long episodes. Um, it, I I just I just thought it was fantastic. I I was really glad that we watched it. Yeah, I'm starting to really appreciate uh, 
some of these new documentaries, these the miniseries that are coming out about certain teams and the unprecedented access that's being given them, like uh, the Amazon All or Nothing that focused on the New Zealand All Blacks is seriously one of the best documentary series I've ever seen. It's really personal and intimate. It's great to be able to take a look, if you will, inside the locker room and find out what's going on in a lot of these guys' heads. It's it's fantastic. Um, I'm not a basketball fan, but I'm definitely interested. I do, again, I lived here in the States during that period, so I do remember the, the fervor around Michael Jordan and, and how great the Chicago Bulls were. Um, I've, I, did, I didn't read the whole article, but I read that, I saw a headline that said that Scottie Pippen was not impressed with the way that he was portrayed in the series. You know, I don't know if you have any insight into that. My my opinion is that it, I I did well. I mean, obviously, if he thinks he doesn't look good, then that's obviously how he feels. I would say he comes across as very sympathetic, and you know, one of the earlier episodes um, shows because because Pippen was on every single one of those teams that won when Jordan won, and many people considered him not just the best. Um, like uh, assist player, you know, like like the way that um, Sean Kemp was to Gary Payton or John Stockton was to Karl Malone, um, that Pippen wasn't just the best like second player on a team, but maybe one of the top five players in the league when he was playing. And he, he signed a really shitty contract early on in his career. And in that sixth season, wanted a, wanted um, a pay increase and uh, didn't get it. And maybe I could see how people would say, like, well, why are you sitting out? You should be there for your team. He was he was incredibly underpaid. It was something like he wasn't even in the top 100 paid players in the league, and he was on five championship teams at that point. Um, so if anything, you just feel bad for this guy who was a fucking incredible athlete and was and comparatively to people in the league was getting paid shit. Um, I think he comes across just fine. Oh, there you go. That that shows me I should have actually read the article instead of just looking at the headline and passing no, no, it by. But but I mean that's that's again that's my opinion of of it. So I who knows who knows. Uh, but there you go. So there are two um, non-Russian non-film recommendations for you: uh, Barry and The Last Dance. Uh, so let's wow. Let's so let's just hard shift. Let's hard shift right into Andre Rublev now. We, 80 episodes ago, discovered our first Tarkovsky film, and that was Stalker, and I think, I think I could speak for both of us when I'd say that movie kind of, kind of blew our minds a bit. Um, Oh, no, it's still, it's still mulling around there in my, in my cerebral cortex or whatever. It's still haunting and, and challenging. a a, A week ago today... Uh, Melissa and I watched it. She watched it for the first time, and I revisited that movie. Um, still holds up, and that two hours and forty minutes actually flies by a lot faster when you've seen it before. Um, how was uh, how was Melissa's impression of it? I think she liked it for what it was. Uh, it de- definitely not her her cup of tea in in general, but I think she found it. Um, she what she gets what kept her interested was that um was was kind of the premise right the the zone and the ever changing landscape and you know there's no one way to get there and everything's kind of changing and um we had a pretty good conversation after the movie was over which is which is nice because that 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 is the kind of movie that i think incites a good conversation <laughs> well yeah you would hope so 
Yeah, I think it it demands to be discussed and and revisited, and like we'll talk about on uh, on this episode, Tarkovsky films, not a one time watch. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so Andrei Rublev, uh, uh, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, it was written by Tarkovsky and Andrei Konchalovsky. And we should just say right here too, we are going to struggle with the names. It's it's become you know bread and butter for us here at a thousand and one by one to to not quite get the foreign names correctly uh and and not disrespectfully i think it's become a kind of sort of running joke between the two of us oh absolutely uh, we're, we're trying I, our best yeah and i i did like you i revisited our our stalker episode just to get myself back in the mood to talk about tarkovsky and i we didn't even bother trying to pronounce the names of the actors and that that's episode. right we we totally just brushed right past that um not so much this time, and we will give it a shot. So, I highlighted seven seven actors. So, if I if I leave anybody out, feel free to throw it back out there. So, um, Anatoly Soliston uh, plays the title character of Andrei Rublev. Uh, Nikolai Grinko plays Daniil. Nikolai Segeriev plays Theophanes. Um, <laughs> Nikolai Bur. Berlyayev? That's tricky. That's a tough fucking name. Um, he plays Bariska. Um, Ivan Lapkov plays Kirill. Um, Irma Rausch plays... I have here Daroshka, but I... I uh, it's also in bracketed the Holy Fool Girl, um, which I have some thoughts on her. And then the only other name that I highlighted, but I'm sure there could be more if you wanted to, was um, Mikhail Kononov as Foma. I also just had uh, Nelly Snaniga uh, as Marfa, the, the pagan woman, and uh, Roland uh, Baikov as the jester that uh, his his appearances sort of bookend the film in a way. Thank you. I You know, I have Roland Baikov here, but I, did, I didn't have the jester. It, they had, um, I think it says the, the Skomorok. I don't know what that is, but, but maybe that's jester in Russian or something. Um, Cool, great. I love it. So we're basically focused on the same people. That's great. Um, the film came well. Okay, so we can talk about release date now, or we could just push it later. <laughs> no, that's that's it's all good. Yeah, it's a little bit complicated. First shown uh, in Moscow uh, to a very select few people in 1966. So now the book actually has it as 1969 because I guess that was the first time it was made widely available you would only would have seen it in 66 if you were in the room with these people yeah and then uh its distribution happened over a number of years finally coming to the uk in 72 and then if you lived here in the states you had to wait almost until the end of 1973 to see it so you're looking at seven years after it was first shown yeah yeah um and then too i you know and i i rarely bring up um running time so much either but um so on the Criterion Collection of this, um, you either have the uh, Tarkovsky's preferred 103-minute version called Andrei Rublev, or you have the 205-minute quote-unquote uh, director's cut called uh, The Passion of Andrei. Um, and we, we can talk about, I think maybe we could delve into that history a little bit later. We won't, we won't jump off the deep end quite yet. Um Hey, Tarkovsky, he's got a few books, or a few movies in the book, um, one of which we've already talked about, Stalker. Uh, the other two are Solaris and The Mirror. Uh, in terms of accolades, so this was shown at Cannes out of competition because of everything that kind of went on within um, 
uh, USSR and their their the state of film. Uh, however, it did when it showed it went. And I say this wrong. Is it the Fapricci Prize? How the no, f- you're pronouncing what? that right. Oh, fucking awesome. Uh, so it won that. That's great. Um, at the Faroe Island Film Festival, it won uh, Best Director and was nominated for Best Film. And that was really in terms of uh, things that it was could win at the time is what I found. However, this has become a a a staple on best of favorite films uh, any 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 group or magazine that can list a favorite film this is usually on that list yeah i have uh, something of a, a divisive list here that i'm excited to share with you it's the guardians top 25 art house films of all time, and so I'm. If you're if you're willing to bear with me, I have I have all 25. We can go through because, as you know, we we love lists on this show. I love lists. Yep, and I love lamp. Ah, I'm glad you said it this time. I I, yeah. I feel like yeah, it, I I feel like it was my turn. <laughs> anyway, so here we go. Running down the Guardians' top 25 art house films of all time. At number 25, we have Spirit of the Beehive, uh, Breaking the Waves, then La Dolce Vita. The Passion of Joan of Arc, Distant Voices, Still Lives. At number 20, we have Cassavetti's Shadows, which is a very good film. I don't know if you've seen any of the ones that I've shouted out so far. Um, uh, the only... Oh, nope. Uh, they're, they're, you went, you've been doing such a great job that I just... I, they've all fallen out of my head. Oh, no worries. <laughs> I can go back and start over if you like. No, no, no it's great. It's great. I will, I will give you a big reaction one way or the other. All right, uh, number 19, uh, the Renoir film Rules of the Game. Uh, number 18, Battleship Potemkin. 17, a big one, There Will Be Blood. Mm. Uh, followed by The Graduates. The Godfather, which I don't... Can we call The Godfather an art house film? I mean, it was a, a huge studio film. I, I, I... Can we call There Will Be Blood an art house film? And, and, and now, what's, what, what, is the, what are the parameters of an art house film? Like the, yeah, see, like, I, that I didn't see in, in any of the writings about any of the films that they called out on this list. Okay, okay. all right. Uh, that brings us to number 14, the Visconti film Death in Venice. Uh, number 13 is a Bernardo Bertolucci film, The Conformist. At number 12, uh, an Indian film that we've batted back and forth talking about. Maybe this will uh, come sometime in season three, uh, Pather Panchali. Uh, number eleven. This will get a big reaction. Egire, Wrath of God. Oh, what a what a great great piece of cinema that was. Oh yeah. Uh, number ten is the Pasolini film, The Gospel According to Saint Matthew. Number nine is a Haneke film, White Ribbon. Uh, number eight, Fanny and Alexander from uh, good friend Berg- of ours, Ingrid Bergman. In- in- wait, uh, wait, wait. Who? Ingmar Bergman. Excuse me. Thank you. <laughs> Glad you caught that. Uh, number seven is the Malik film Days of Heaven, which you still haven't seen that one, right? I have not. I, I like that film a lot. Uh, number six is A Clockwork Orange. Number five, Citizen Kane. Again, I I don't know whether we can call that art house or not. Well, and then that's funny because I, I know that that was, that was, the funding on that was kind of like, it, that there wasn't a whole lot of it. But then, like, just the one before that was A Clockwork Orange, and I, I, I can't say who produced it over in the UK, but I know Warner Brothers distributed that in the US, so I don't, I, I don't know, whatever. Maybe, maybe the, what the Guardian are going for here is the tone of films, rather than their origins and funding and, and such. 
but yeah, sort of I, how they're respected within certain communities, maybe. And then I, but then I, I would personally, I would throw The Godfather and Citizen Kane off of that list. Yeah, definitely. Uh, number four is the Uzo film Tokyo Story. Number three, uh, La Atalante, uh, Jean Vigo film. Number two, Mulholland Drive. And the one that I haven't mentioned yet because it's the show, number one is actually Andre Rublev. Whoa, look at that. Is look. They call that the greatest art house film of all time. Now, you'll notice, I, I think there's some egregious errors here. There are two really big art house films that aren't on this list, and I'm wondering if you want to take a shot in the dark as to what I would say they are, because we've covered one on this on this show. Uh, I would guess that maybe w- the one that you're thinking of is Brazil. No, uh, thinking Seventh Seal. To me, when I think art house, oh. that image of death on the beach that screams art house to me. Uh, and then I don't know something Tarantino. Uh, no, the other one I was thinking of was Seven Samurai. Yeah, but that's so big and had so much. I don't know. See, I don't know. I, and maybe I'm confusing art house with independent. I don't because I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. So again, um, maybe, maybe that list isn't quite as divisive as I thought it was going to be, but certainly I think the additions of uh, I, things like The Godfather, The Graduate, Citizen Kane are a little questionable. I think I'm just more confused by it, to be to be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting list. Yeah. Um, uh, as of uh, a couple of weeks ago, this movie was ranked number 220 on the IMDb's Top 250. I have it that number ha- as well. Yeah, it uh, has a critical Rotten Tomato score of 94% with the audience just behind at 94. Um, I don't Wait, did you say 94 and 94? I said 95 and 94. Oh, okay, excuse me. Right. Oh, or maybe I said 94. I don't know. All right. The critic Either score way. is 95 and the audience score go. is 94. There we um, go. <laughs> I didn't get any uh, critical like reviews because... I read and watched so much shit on this movie that I just I I didn't bother with an like a, a an actual review from the time. I'm I'll I'll be honest, I didn't do that. Well, I have um so that that list that I just read off uh, that was featured in the Guardian. I do have uh, the piece that Steve Ray, uh, Steve Rose wrote for the Guardian in trying to justify why it is the greatest art house film of all time. I'll just read a, a little piece from that if you're okay with that. Of course. Uh, It is not a film that needs to be processed or even understood, only experienced and wondered at. With Andrei Rublev, Tarkovsky was consciously crafting a language that owed nothing to literature, and it's a pity so few others followed with him. In today's cinema, we're still served up linear cause-and-effect biographies of artists as if, by doing so, we'll understand the person and be able to make sense of their art. Andrei Rublev operates according to a different understanding of time and history. It asks questions about the relationship between the artist, their society, and their spiritual beliefs and doesn't seek to answer them. In cinema, it is necessary not to explain but to act upon the viewer's feelings and the emotion which is awoken in awoken, excuse me, awakened in what provokes thought, wrote Tarkovsky in 1962 while they were prepping this film. You know, there was something uh in the research, uh, just really quick before we, we hop into to our, our best version of a plot synopsis. Um, and, and I, I love, so in the included with the criterion were, was an essay by Jay Hoberman and then, uh, an inner part of an interview that Tarkovsky did in, in 62. And there was something, and this is before the movie was, was, uh, filmed. This was in the research and writing part of it. And I, I what I, what I want to preface before I read this was just 
how clear Tarkovsky's vision of this movie was. Here's what he said before he, before he ever started filming it. In our film, there will not be a single shot of Rublev painting his icons. He will simply live, and he won't even be present on screen in every episode. And the last part of the film, in color, will be solely devoted to Rublev's icons. We will show them in detail, as in a popular scientific film. The on-screen demonstration of the icon will be accompanied by the same musical by the same music that uh, musical themes that sounded in the episode of Rublev's life corresponding to the time during which the icon was conceived. He knew exactly what this movie was going to be before they they shot a single frame of it. And and he was this was his second feature. He was 30 when he made this? Yeah, that's which is incredible. Like, and and I, it, it, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sitting here, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of, I'm kind of at a loss for words because, while I, I will say, state right off the bat that I prefer Stalker to this, the, the scope, and size, and openness, and in a way, the, the like flying in the face of of what the USSR kind of wanted this movie to be it's so huge <laughs> it's it's such a big movie in 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 every way that a movie can be big and for this to be your second feature uh, it it's it's quite the accomplishment and i i guess oh, it's, i want to baffling what was that Oh, sorry. It's it's baffling. I don't know that yeah. at that age. I mean, who? I mean, obviously, people with different backgrounds and communities and cultures and things like that. But to 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 stop and think about him being thirty years old and tackling this is just is baffling to me. It's 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 more than I would ever be capable of at at my thirty two years. Well, and it's just I think it's the he clearly knew what he wanted the film to be and. There's something about not, I guess, just not letting go of of your your vision of your concrete and uh, very sure thoughts on what you feel like this film should be. Um, so, I mean, to describe the plot of this movie, um, I feel like it's you could do it really quick to get the gist, but then it really isn't enough to say what the movie's about. I mean, obviously we're following for the most part, uh, Andre Rublev through, uh, various points in his life. Although it is not necessarily biographical. It's not like here's him born and here are, here's him at the, the biggest stages of, of his life and, and the biggest, the biggest concerns. It seems like we've really just, and, and I, I'm, I, I, I don't want, this is going to sound like I'm not giving Tarkovsky credit, but it's like in a weird way, it's, it's like, we had a biography of Andrei Rublev and we intentionally ripped out chapters. And so it's just like, we're not, we're not getting the whole story. Um, and like, it, it was like, you know, in, in a, in a, in a, in a book where, you know, every, every 50 pages or so there's like colored pages of like photos of the real people or, or if there were a painter, like, it's like all the photos were ripped out. All of the icons that associated Rublev were, were torn out of this book because that's not necessarily what the movie was about. Um, and then, I, yeah, man. And then in the process, 
We see his his relationships with Kirill and Daniil and uh, Theophanes, him trying to take on um, not a squire. What's the, like a, an apprentice of his own with Foma? Uh, I you know, and then everything with the Bell, which I know if you haven't seen this movie, you probably have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. But the I would say the last the last fourth of this movie is about the creation and raising of a bell. <laughs> I, I don't know, yeah, man. This, this, this film is more about, uh, about themes and about, uh, allowing ideas of, of man's relationship with arts and nature and community than it is even about Andrei Rublev. He's, um, you know what I kept coming back to, which is the weirdest comparison. Think about the Mad Max movies. Like, the movie is called Mad Max, but the movie isn't about him. He is a secondary character in his own story, and he's a sort of... He is a way to sort of drive the plot, but he's he's a supporting player in in a, in a world. Oh, for sure. No, I, it, it, I think in that way, that, that makes quite a bit of sense. Um, and it's not like... The movie being called Andre Rublev is any kind of there's not I'm not confused when he's not in it, you know, because even when when we focus more on the bell at the later the later stages of the movie, he's not gone. He's just not the focus. Right. Because because during that time, he's he's in his vow of silence and he's he's very much just a surrounding figure in what's going on. And. I don't want to. I don't. I don't know where to even start with this. I. I was going to jump to something right then, but I, I. I feel like it's too early to get to to what I wanted to say. So I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to jump too soon. Can we? I would actually. I would love to start at the beginning. Um, with the. I don't know if the prologue is the right word, but before we get to the first actual part of the movie that. Andre Rublev comes in, and I—I I guess you would call this the, the 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 floating man. I don't know what you know. There's no there's no title for this one. Well, uh, in in the uh, in the movie, I believe his name is Fema, and uh, he's actually he's actually based on a a myth, a Russian myth that yes. was debunked in the in the 18th century. Uh, Grekotny, I believe the guy's name was he. Uh, supposedly was the first man to fly and the the russians sort of held him up as uh look at this heroic russian figure who is a, a sort of life lesson on on ambition and and something to be inspired by uh ultimately that that myth was debunked but i i do kind of really like this prologue this uh sort of rumination on ambition and to me, it almost works like, again, I'm going to make a really odd comparison like Mad Max just a minute ago. It reminded me a bit of the prologue at the beginning of A Serious Man, the, the Coen Brothers movie. Like, this is an episode that from the outset doesn't seem to have anything to do with the movie. And in the Coen Brothers case, it, it kind of didn't. They came out and said, well, we wanted to make like an A and B picture. This is like when you went to the movies way, way back in the day and there would be like a cartoon preceding the feature. And so it, 
you could you could liken it to that, though I do think this episode is a little more interconnected to the movie than at first it appears to be. I mean, I, I like the rumination on, on ambition because we're going to see so much of that later in the film. And, and what we really have to do right from the outset is consider where Russia was in history. We don't often do that with the films that we talk about, but this one especially is something where we need, need to consider the time and the place. This is the early to mid-60s in Russia. This is the height of the Cold War. Uh, the Russians are are looking to present, you know, these icons, these, these Russian figures, something to be an inspiration to the people. Stalin has been dead uh, almost 10 years at the point where they're prepping the film, and so even though there still is a lot of, of censorship and a lot of, you know, the party controlling everybody's lives, uh, they did allow, you know, a bit more openness when it came to the arts and culture. Uh, the, the famous painter Matisse visited Russia during this time and sort of helps the people rediscover uh, Andrei Rublev and uh, the icons of, of Russian religions. Um, and so I, I was thinking about, again, I'm just going to keep making odd comparisons. I was thinking about that great speech that John Milius wrote for Sean Connery in The Hunt for Red October. You know, this is a we're talking about the heady days of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin, where the world trembled at the sound of our rockets. You know, this for I think for the Russian government and the Russian people, the idea of making this film was to be like, look at one of these great figures of our past and be inspired by him. And this is where that theory that I, I talked about, I'll just get it right out of the way at the beginning, and we can sort of see if you agree with me as we go through the episode. I think Tarkovsky was a genius for taking this particular guy and going, I know exactly what you guys want. You want this inspirational biographical feature, but Rubliev is really Tarkovsky throughout this film. This film is a reflection of an artist and the world that he inhabits. If you notice throughout the film, Rublev, uh, Rublev and, uh, and Boryshka in the final act of the film, they both bite their nails in a very distinct way. Well, that's, they were both just kind of playing Tarkovsky. And so I think this is a, as a reflection of an artist trying to come to terms with the world that he lives in. And, and Rublev, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Tarkovsky, I think, was able to take advantage of what the Russian government wanted by going, here, I'm going to pretend that I'm giving you the thing that you want, but really this film is for me and about me. I think that's totally fair. And I think you can see that in different moments. Uh, most, I mean, not literally so much, but... You know, even before this, I mean, his his movie Ivan's Childhood um, was was fairly per, was a fairly personal movie to him. Um, now I've not seen it, but for for all intents and purposes, that movie is very much personally tied to Tarkovsky. So uh, to and and I I watched that interview with uh, the the actor who played Bariska, who uh, said like I was I was doing my best Tarkovsky in, in some of the scenes. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, there are scenes where, in the movie, where uh, Rubliev doesn't want to, he's not, he doesn't want to really do the icon anymore. He doesn't want to paint in that one church. He's, he's, he's not feeling it. He doesn't want to do it. And part of that might be because he's doing, he's being asked to paint something he doesn't believe in, or he's questioning, or uh, the people who, or he, who are, who are paying him to do it, he doesn't want, you know, doesn't want to work for them. Um and so, I mean, whether or not uh, Tarkovsky's actively thinking about that, 
while he's making the movie or that's that's coming more in the editing process or whatever, I think we can make assumptions now or at least draw comparisons now to Tarkovsky and Rublev being, you know, interchangeable in, in terms of their their thoughts on approaching the arts. So I I kind of derailed us talking about my my theory about this this film and Tarkovsky, but the the opening episode, uh, I guess I I cut you off talking about maybe whether it was necessary or not. Are you do you oh do no, you no, no, like no. that opening? Is it is it something that I think you feel it, no I, I think it's lost? fine. Um um I mean I could take it or leave it honestly, but it didn't it didn't draw me out. And I, I actually was going to say uh, that the ser- the serious man comparison is a great comparison. I totally see what you're getting at with that. Um, for me, more than anything, that what that opening scene did, uh, there's the there's the canoes coming up to the water. And when we follow the, the one guy uh, going through the barn and checking everything out and we're in that that smooth fucking one take shot. There was just some, the thought I had basically was I'm in the safe hands of Tarkovsky right now. The way, and it's like I had just seen Stalker a few days before I watched this. I, I, and you know, we're still we're still dipping our toe into the dark into the Tarkovsky pool, but there's something now where it's like when when I watch a Hitchcock movie, I know I'm watching one. Same with Kubrick, same with Scorsese, and with Tarantino. There's just a style and a way in which they move the camera that I just know that's whose movie I'm watching. Same with Fincher. I've only seen two, Kar- two, two Tarkovsky movies, but I'm, I'm already safely like, okay, I now know when I'm watching a Tarkovsky film. Plus, I've seen clips, and, and, and I mean this, like just clips of uh, Nostalgia, Sacrifice, and The Mirror. And... All of those shots that I've seen are all about how fluid that fucking camera moves. And it's just like, it's, I've never really felt more like I'm just what, like that I'm just a floating orb happening to catch what is being on screen. Like, like that my role as an audience is more of just like happenstance to be, to catch this. And I'm floating past it as long as the wind, and by the wind I mean Tarkovsky, will allow me to stay and see it before I'm blown to the next thing. It's just, I, I, I mean, I can't say that I, I thought this was a, the best film ever, and I, but I can see why people think that. But man, I, just the way the camera moved throughout this movie just kept me so. With a smile on my face, even if I didn't quite, if it was, if it seemed counterintuitive to what was being on screen, um, I know most specifically when we're seeing, um, when, when, is it, Tar- oh shit, I don't know if it's Tarkovsky or Daniil or, or who it is, but somebody's talking about the crucifixion and Foma is cleaning the brushes and we're seeing a vision of the crucifixion. Um, now, that is not a pleasant scene. But but I did I had a dumb grin on my face because just the way that that the crucifixion that all that stuff was shot, it was just shot so beautifully that I couldn't help but have a grin on my face, like just to be that that's, impressed by the camera work. That's so great to hear this. I'm glad we're on the same page about this because there is even two films in now. I think we both have found an odd 
sort of familiarity and a comfort with these Tarkovsky films. It's almost like, like you said, you know you're in the safe hands of Tarkovsky. It's like just slipping into a warm bath and just relaxing and being able to let this experience just wash over you. Because from the outset, you say to people, like we did on the Stalker episode, hey, I'm going to pop on a, a 1960s three-hour black-and-white Russian film about a, fifth, <laughs> a 14th century icon painter. They're going to look sideways at you. Um but it is, if you give yourself over to it, it can be one of the most beautifully rewarding experiences you can have as as a as a cinephile. Oh, yeah, totally. And I'm just I'm just trying to quickly uh, fly through my notes here because I just want to make sure I've got this right. Yeah. So. You know, the we have the I believe that that. Yeah. So that that section of the film, the title it's given is The Passion According to Andre. And that includes that uh, the vision of the crucifixion. Um, and then the next scene is titled The Holiday. And it's sort of the the midsummer night frolicking paganism stuff. Now, I don't I'm not meaning to demean either of those scenes by saying stuff and, and you know, using, you know, common phrases. It's just I'm, I'm what I'm trying to get to is, the, again, the way in which this movie feels like like, you know, those opening shots of old movies where it's like the page is turning on screen and like the camera zooms and it's like once upon a time and like that. And then that's where we're starting. Again, this movie feels to me like like the wind is blowing and like 30 pages turn and then we stop on one of these things and we're hap- we we just happen to catch this one for lack of a better word chapter. And then the wind comes by again and it blows another 30 pages and then we go so we go from the passion of Andre to the holiday and what's great about this movie and I do think this is one of the better parts is that we don't I'm I'm not yearning for those thirty pages that we miss. Do, do you know what I mean? I don't need this. Oh, to absolutely. Be, yeah, I don't need this to be the biography of Andre Rublev, right? I this can just be. Hey, look at these things that happened in and around his life. Um, because the passion, according to Andre, as as one section, is really interesting, and there's a lot of things to talk about there. And then in the holiday section, I mean, talk about you know, what, whatever your morals and, and ethical boundaries are being pushed to their fucking limits because we're watching him, not even with his art, just him as a person being pushed to the brink of throwing everything that he's considered important in his life out the window. Yeah, I, I love the uh, I love the, the brief sort of dances the film does with the idea of temptation. Now, when it when it comes to temptation, obviously it's been done better and when we, we talk about religion, I mean, the two movies that jumped into my mind while I was watching this were The Last Temptation of Christ and The Seventh Seal. And I think both of those films are better ruminations on a lot of the, the things that the movie talks about, like, uh, you know, the divinity of Christ and, and Christ being loved as either a divine being or being loved as a man. And maybe, you know, that's what drew the people to him and and. The, the religious discussions aren't exactly deep in this film, but that's, I, I love that that's not really the point, you know what I mean? Like, we do spend part of the episode dealing with the temptation of Andre, but it doesn't, it doesn't really go anywhere, which, which I also like. It's just like, this is just a brief moment in time, and you know what really kind of rubbed me the wrong way was the, the interview on the Criterion with Robert 
I believe his name was Robert Byrd, and he, yes. he mentions that, oh, Andre has obviously fallen into temptation. I go, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, he, he talks about the shame and that maybe perhaps Andre has, you know, foregone his, his oath and his vows and he slept with that woman. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't get that impression at all. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Honestly, I was like, I hope Ian's going there. I, I disagree. Yeah, or not, I don't. I agree with you. I disagree with Robert Byrd. Just make that clear. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think we're not seeing the face of a man walking back to his group who has crossed the line. We're seeing a man walking back, going, "I came really close to crossing the line," and it's not the look of remorse. It's the look of contemplation of if if I if I could be pushed right now by somebody I don't know in the middle of the night, what's going to happen with something stronger uh, one way or the other. And not even, not even in, in terms of throwing the weight like lustfully, but just like when something else comes along, like, and, and maybe foreshadowing a bit. Uh, but when we get to the raid, obviously he takes the vow of silence because he's killed a man. And even though, and I, I t- was typing furiously because obviously I'm going, but you, you, you were not in the wrong by doing it. But obviously him as a monk, as a religious man, he's he's done something, you know, quote unquote, unforgivable. So um, I think that the being tempted by the woman and killing the man while wildly different things one person can do is that idea of crossing the line of of having these these moral and ethical bounds and what happens when we get close to them or go past them. Well, I'm wondering if you perhaps might have used the same word as I did in my notes. I kept using the word progressive. I think Andrei Rublev is a man sort of out of time. He is quite ahead of a lot of the people around him, like in his uh, theological debates with Theophanes about the, you know, Christ being a man rather divine, rather than divine, and then his, again, his feelings to having killed a man in a very sort of bloodthirsty time and place. You know, he, he can't deal with it in the way that I'm assuming most other people would be able to deal with it. In fact, like you say, he takes that vow of silence in a way of almost punishing himself. And again, the the, the temptation with, I believe her name is Marfa uh, in the movie, the, the pagan woman. I think yeah. he is quite a pro- quite a progressive character. Well, and yeah, I mean, and it's, there's a, um, and definitely uh, at times an existentialist, there's, um, and I forget, I don't know if it's, I think it's Danil. Uh, and this is when he's um, he's being been asked to paint the icon in that new cathedral, but he's he's not doing it. And they have that conversation. I think it's, I want to say it's either in a wheat field or a cornfield, but he's, you know they're kind of in the middle of a of a of a road, and they're having this discussion. And he's like he he basically he's saying he can't do it, and you know and he's being asked why, and he and and I in a real way he has no answer. And there's something about like, what does it all mean? Why do it? And I feel like for, yeah, for, for the 1400s and for a monk, this is really like, wow, that's, that's kind of amazing. However, I think we got to attribute a lot of that to Tarkovsky because um, there really is no biography on Andre Rubliev. There's, there's really yep. not a lot of information about him. And so him and there's Ken- not even a clear birth or death date for him. Yeah, exactly. Him and so Tarkovsky and I'm gonna say this wrong again because this guy's name is also hard. Konchalovsky, something like that. Konchalovsky, um, who he wrote the movie with. Um, they invented a, a lot of stuff, um, and so I think that is that 
Rubliev is obviously Tarkovsky and Konchalovsky, um, you know, putting in these, I, I think, o- almost like 1960s progressive thoughts um, into this character and placing them in this movie, which obviously was intentional because you, you heard Tarkovsky talk a lot about the fact that um, that Andre Rublev in the movie, as played by Anatoly Solitskin, um, was very much meant to feel modern, feel a little out of place, which I think is and interesting. That's, that's another. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I oh, no. The, the the word modern is again all over my notes. Not not just in characterizations. The the film itself feels so ahead of its time. I am willing to to put good money down on the fact if you didn't tell this, somebody this film was made in 1966 and showed them this absolutely stunning i think honestly the best restoration i've ever seen criterion do sit somebody down in front of this thing they wouldn't be able to tell you it was made in the 60s yeah the the restoration of this is is really good i mean oh man what a fun side debate that would be like top five criterion restorations we've seen because i immediately this and um easy rider are the two that like scream out at me oh yeah yeah, Chemo. I picked up that Easy Rider after after you were talking about it on our episode, and it was it was honestly like watching it for the first time. Did you get the uh, the big box set or just Easy Rider? Or wait, I, you have to- I didn't. I didn't get the BBS set. I, oh, did, okay. I just got. I, though I do have a couple of those BBS movies now. Like I've got five Easy Pieces. I've got uh, uh, the King of Marvin Gardens, which okay. I'm very excited. I'm on a I'm on a huge Jack Nicholson thing right now, so I'm pretty excited to to get okay. to King of Marvin Gardens. Can, can I just take five seconds right now to say that Melissa and I, um, you, you bastard, you have gotten me on this boutique Blu-ray kick. And I've, now I'm like scouting out places. I, and now that I have a, a, a region free player, I bought um, uh, Indicator or, or uh, Powerhouse Films um, is a UK company. And I, I bought two Jack Nicholson movies from them. And one of we watched Mike Nichols Wolf. Dude, it's actually. I, I've I've not seen that. I've heard it's. I heard it's very underrated. Oh, that, exactly the word I would use. And like it's like yes, there's it's like a Wolfman thing. He's and that he's going through that, but it's also about like him being ousted from this publishing uh, firm that he that he probably shouldn't be. And like great supporting cast, dude. James Spader, Christopher Plummer, Michelle Pfeiffer. It's it's off the charts. It's it is an entertaining flick. Oh, that's awesome! I'm gonna have to cue that up. Sorry, that was this is so off topic, but oh no, that's all good. We we have our tangents. Yeah, we do. Um, Whores so, will have their trinkets. <laughs> um, I I don't I I wanted so my my favorite shot of the film honestly is was that the that that great one that uh, fairly long one take going through the barn. Um, at the top of the film, I just again it made me it welcomed me into the world of Tarkovsky. It's it's almost it's so playful as well. And, you know, yeah. Tarkovsky at such a young age, and and having the confidence to do the things that he does, like that the that crane shot as well that follows it. I'm like you, magnificent bastard! You were just so comfortable as a filmmaker. It makes me it makes me really sad. It makes me very melancholy that he only did seven features. I mean, who yeah. knows what else we could have gotten out of him in a more modern time. I I absolutely agree with you, but there's something... It, it, it's In a way, it's like Kubrick, and I know Kubrick made more, but it's like, I, I, I so appreciate that, like, he didn't make films 
you know, very often. And when he did, it was the, it, it was, he was actively making something different or pushing himself in one way. And they were so uniquely him. And that's, you know, akin to like a, a Kubrick or a Fincher, somebody who like, if I'm going to make a movie, I'm going to, I want to make it on my own time in my own way. And I, I, I love that. Um, it's almost like what Tarantino is trying to do through Artifice of going, and there's only going to be 10. You've got a nice round even number that's going to make them special because there's so few of them. But what he's doing deliberately, these artists kind of did, I think, with with more, uh, not intense necessarily is the right word, but I think uh, I, I think it does make them feel more special because there I are so few of them. Yeah, in a, in a I, much more genuine way than Tarantino saying, "Oh, there's only gonna be 10. Well, and that's and that's that's what I was gonna I was gonna just make the uh, just a, a little note that obviously Tarantino is still alive and he's still making films. I think that would have been his sentiment anyway. I I think him I think him saying it just makes him sound like a douchebag. But um, but I, but he is still one of those people who takes years between projects because he's crafting it to be his own unique thing. Uh, which just to bring it back to Tarkovsky, I, I mean, I, I, there's just something so wonderful about the way that he decides to uh, tell a story. Um, because even again, my only other frame of reference is Stalker, but very unconventional. Uh, you know, not a straightforward narrative. A lot of ruminations. A lot of of um, text that is is heard over over just kind of landscapes or floating shots like you know we're not always watching the character speak we're hearing the words but we're seeing something different and i think that's uh something that tarkovsky likes to do as well well i i do love his connection to nature especially i love all our shots of water of landscape this film is so preoccupied with with composition it's almost like i'll liken it again to somebody like uh, terence malick where story and characters and dialogue that's all secondary i want to compose these beautiful shots for the to and just allow them to wash over you and let you think about your oh. place in the world through this and and through nature i love all the lingering shots of water we got a lot of that in stalker as well i love that i almost thought to me maybe does does tarkovsky feel that water is is cleansing you know, because oh. we see a lot of 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 the, the the milk dispersing in the water. We see the the cleaning of the paintbrushes. I yeah. love uh, horses for him. There's a lot of horses in this film, and I, yeah. I read that horses were uh, a symbol of life for Tarkovsky. Well, oh God, so, I, so many things I want to respond to really quick. There's that shot I mentioned earlier where he's where 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 Rublev is talking to Daniil. And there's a scene of a guy on a horse that goes by and the camera follows the horse for no real reason and then cuts back to them. And I remember watching that going, you know, you know, that's intentional. You know that 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 wasn't there was a reason behind why he chose to keep that in your movies long. Obviously, cuts need to be made, but you decided to, to follow that horse for an extra three seconds that were, quote, you know, unnecessary to the storytelling. But in a way. You, you you know it meant something uh so i'm i'm really glad you mentioned the horses uh it's a i think it's a window into his soul i think it's a very intimate very personal detail of his life that we're getting which i means so much to me that he would be that open even if it is in a, a really left field very far removed way yeah um but you also mentioned his composition and uh 
there's the shot. I want to say it's it's after it's really early on in the film. They've they've gone into the I don't know the the barn or the little house, and uh, the jester guy he's doing his bit, and then he gets taken away, and and the three monks are leaving as uh as like so the three monks are leaving in the foreground in front of the trees, and in the distance we can see the cart of horses. Like I I they're not police, but the guards or whoever the fuck they are are leaving way way in the distance, and like again. Maybe maybe if you're looking for plot or you're looking for great storytelling, you're not going to see anything in that moment. But again, but watching the shot for what the shot was, which is a beautifully composed shot of, of two separate groups going like what looks like in a similar direction. But obviously, because of how far the other group is, they're not uh, that uh, just. Uh, yeah. The composition of of the film, too, is just great, which is why my my unsung hero, as I scroll through my notes, is uh, Vadin Yusuf, who is a cinematographer. Um, because again, the, the cinematography of this movie is just, mwah. it's, it's bon appetit. It's, 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 ah, it's beautiful. It's, it's perfection. Yeah. There's so few films like it. Uh, I, I'd be happy to piggyback on that. I was also going to talk about the lead Anatoly Solonitsyn. This was his, he was a theater actor. This was his first film. He has a huge burden on his back in this movie. And I, I think it's. Who who else can say that this they had a first feature like this? They were given a role this intense and beautiful and and thought provoking. I think it's a real. I think he was given a real gift, and he didn't squander that at all. Especially nope. in the scene after he has murdered that guy, and he has that vision of Theophanes. That conversation, that performance, I wrote in huge block letters. I was like, this is award worthy material that unfortunately will probably forever go unrecognized. Well, and that brings up another thing that I thought about that we've talked about many a time before is this idea that so many of these movies beloved by critics and and film historians seem to have some kind of like behind the scenes. This movie was there was something fucked up going on, whether it was in the production or the fact that uh, Gaschino and the USSR like tried to cut it and showed it without authorization and basically weren't happy with it. And there all, there seems to be some kind of story behind the scenes of like this, some in one way, this movie was fucked and, and it, it does sort of, it leads to this, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't want to use the word mystique, but it does. It, I think it resonates more in people's mind, especially if you're a film historian, because you can, you can go, Oh man, well look, you know, this happened and they weren't able to do this, but because of, whatever, you know, the movie was able to be seen. And, you know, it's between Aguirre and Apocalypse Now and, you know, Brazil and God, you know, all, you know, and those are just three, Vertigo, you know, there's four movies with interesting pasts that we've already discussed on this, on this podcast. And we're only at what episode 80, this is episode 84. So, I mean, I I love that. I love the, the stories because once you know the stories, I think it, it can inform the way that you view the film. It can it can change the way that you frame a lot of things. And you can... There are movies where you do feel the struggle behind the scenes. And it, it sometimes, obviously, it, it fails miserably. But other times, it can be quite rewarding to have that knowledge and be able to frame the film with that mindset and knowing just how lucky we are to have it. And not only have it, but we have two uh, versions of it as well. I don't know if you want to talk about uh, the longer cut as well and the, the sort of the changes that were made. Um, we, we've said a lot of, of positive things. We've, we've gushed about this film a lot, but I, I would like to skew it negative, actually, 
Let's and, do it. And, and talk about some of the things that maybe you didn't like about the film. Now, of course, you didn't. You said you didn't see the longer cut. Uh, the animal cruelty in the longer cut is definitely more pronounced. Yeah. Um, so trigger warning for, for anybody who is uh, affected by this. Um, it There is some stuff in this film that is very difficult to watch. Uh, in the longer cut, the, the beating of the dog is extended, and you do see a dog laying on the ground, you know, kind of like in a state of, of shock. I, I really hope they didn't actually beat the dog. I'm hoping that that dog was trained. I'm going to choose to believe that. Um, now, because the now dog does be, lay there twitching a little bit. I would like to take a moment here, too, quickly, just quickly, to say that my oldest, Stella, watched about 25 to 30 minutes of this movie with me. Um, and I would say that her biggest criticism of the movie was the dog being beaten as well. And, and she asked me, she, it's so funny. She didn't like get mad or close her eyes. She just, she really calmly looked at me and goes, why is he hitting the, 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 the dog? And I said, you know, some people get so frustrated and they don't know who to take it out on. So they just, they will take it out on, on whoever happens to be around them at the time. And I said, at that time, it just happened to be the dog. And then she, she look, kind of looked back at the screen and looked back at me and he goes, well, he's mean. And I was like, yeah, he's mean right now. You're right. I, I would agree. So yeah, shout it's, out it's definitely stuff. not right. And the longer cut also did the, the raid sequence is quite, uh, quite a bit more graphic. Um, of course, there's a very famous story behind this film uh, that a horse was killed for the sake of this film, which is, of course, disappointing to hear. The justification, of course, is that the horse was on its way to a slaughterhouse the next day anyway. But it is it is quite again I'll use, I'll put the phrase out there trigger warning they did shoot a horse in the neck and push it down a small flight of stairs which is definitely difficult to hear now in the the 183 minute cut it's it's cut off quite quickly in the the longer the passion according to Andre you see the horse stumbling around quite a bit more before somebody sticks a spear in it and then oh. off screen they shot it uh, to sort of put it out of its misery so that can be quite tough to know. Um, now it's it's not going to make me say that oh I think this film, I, I I do think this film should be brought to task for something like that. It's not going to change how much I I I like it and and think that it is an important piece of film history. But I mean that is that is quite a hard pill to swallow. Oh for sure. I mean, you know, and and we can we can of course do the thing that we do, which is to say this movie is very very old. And uh, what was considered okay to do back then obviously is not anymore. Um, I can see, you know, Tarkovsky's justification for this being that the, the horse was on the way to a slaughterhouse. Um, you know, however you feel about that, that scene being shot and kept in the movie, you know, we've all basically what, what's left is that it's it's an unfortunate shot and an otherwise pretty beautiful movie, even in its depiction of violence, the way that they, they try to, to shoot it, I think. So, you know, uh, it certainly makes the point that the people raiding the town aren't very good people. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Is there is there anything negative that you would like to say about the film? I I, I have one, one thing that radically sticks out um, to me. So, and it, it actually happens over the, the raid sequence, right? And it's so funny because I have a note here. I'm looking, uh, I'm looking at my notes. It's right after the, the note about the horse. And I said, just I quickly has like the people hiding in the cathedral. I said, this is heartbreaking. Um, but the music over this is, was wonderful. I loved, I loved a lot of the chanting and the very or, orchestral sounds throughout the movie. 
But there is a moment um, later on. There might be some some space I have to kill here because I, I have to find my notes specifically. Brothers embracing. Oh, yeah. So we, we have the moments of sort of the, the flashing of the prince and his brother um, tr- looking like they're like uh, coming to some kind of a mutual peace. But it, obviously, that's not that's not what's happening in, in the real story. Um, and uh, the the somebody I forget somebody is uh dragged off by a horse there's a moment where he he they're trying to get somebody to talk and he won't talk so they 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 drive him off they get dragged off by a horse and then it cuts to the shot of of like the carnage happening outside and the music is in that one particular moment is very very weird at one point i said it reminds me of like when you'd be watching an episode of the twilight zone and they were getting ready to go to commercial that kind of really campy 60s like television score and it it was so stark because nothing else had sounded like it at all through the movie and i was like wow that's that doesn't really um make sense for what's going on with the the movie. no that's that's a good way that's a good way to put it i mean i mentioned that i think a lot of people might have a hard time discerning exactly when this film was made but that is one moment where yes it is a victim of maybe the aesthetic of the time and sort of shows its hand as to, to how old it is. Yeah. Um, but I do I do love the, again, I mean, I just can't help but like talk about the composition in this film. I love the way that's shot, though, and the sense of scale that we get, not only in that, but also in the bell-making sequence as well, with those beautiful shots of panning up the men, holding the ropes, leading to Barishka. You know, the, the if I could jump ahead to the bell sequence... Please, uh, please do. They, yeah, the... <laughs> they... Uh, somebody had said, I believe it was uh, his writing partner, that he said that Tarkovsky could have just cut the film down to the bell sequence. And the, the bell sequence is sort of all-encompassing for the, the general sort of message and tone of the film. I mean, there... I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. There clearly... Here's what I'll say. There clearly is a movie within this movie, and it is the bell sequence. Um, now, uh, jumping right, like, right to the end of it, if we don't have the rest of the movie, um, and particularly the start of uh, Rublev's um, Vow of Silence, we don't get the moment of him breaking it to comfort Bariska at the end, which oh, is... Oh, man, I, can, I can't choose a favorite moment. There are too many, but that is a very strong contender for the best it, moment in the movie. Yeah, very high up. Um, and, and, you know, and I think why... I like that moment so much is that, you know, Bariska is somebody who's, he's lost his family. Excuse me. He's lost his family to the plague. He's basically just trying to be scrappy. He's just doing whatever he can to stay alive. And if it, if it means not, not lying, I don't want to say lying, but like um, overly stating how good he is at bell making to have food and shelter uh, so be it. That's what he's gonna do. He's he's definitely a like a streetwise kind of uh, scrappy kid in a way, um, and the way that everything goes, like it's so funny to talk about this movie. And I at no point would say that like it's a tense film, but Jesus, like every step of the way, like when they're when first they're trying to see if the bell is even under. By the way, 
I didn't know there was an actual bell under that thing when they cracked it. When like, and then when when you see there's a bell, it's like, oh, okay, great. Huh. The bell's there. But then it's like, oh, but is it going to fucking ring? And I was like, oh, shit. Of course I'm not thinking about that because what the fuck do I know about bell making? But like, but now there's like, <laughs> but now there's another thing to be really fucking concerned about, which is like, did we just spend all of this time and effort to make a bell that doesn't fucking ring? And like, but he's also, but Bariska's kind of being a dick. Like it's, he's definitely letting it get to his head at times. And so at the end, for him to have this like genuine moment of catharsis to just kind of let it all out and like to he doesn't say specifically like that he was afraid it wasn't going to work, but he, instead he says his dad never told him the secret. And so like it's got it's it's joy, but it's heartbreak and it's nostalgia and it's so many fucking things and like whether it's because because Rublev is just a, an open person or because in his silence, he's just been able to observe more and like he can see how desperately, how desperately this kid needs help and guidance. And it's just, <laughs> I don't, it was, it, oh yeah, a, a story. It was, it, you know, you, we could, we could, you know, we could argue the live long day on like what parts you could trim to make it a maybe a bit short, a bit more palatable to a more mainstream uh, audience. And I think that maybe is a worthy conversation to have. I don't know, but you need everything. You need everything that happens in this movie to get to that point. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you, you feel that way too. Otherwise this could have been a much more contentious episode. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't have this in my notes, just listening to you the way that you, you talked about that, which I appreciate so much, but I I've had something come to me while while you're you're while I'm listening to you talk about that sequence and building to it and things like that. This film is about a lot of things. Almost some people might say this film is about too many things. But in an era where this phrase didn't quite exist yet, and again I'm making the, the case for how ahead of this time this film is, if we could say the film is about one thing and one thing only I'm tempted to say this film is about imposter syndrome. Go on. Well, we we have uh, we have Andre living in a in a time and place where, as I've said, he is a progressive. He doesn't want to paint the Last Judgment because he doesn't want to frighten the people into the submission of belief, and then that is juxtaposed with uh, the Bellmaker, who who at the end does break down and, and confesses, I never had the secret, you know, I was faking all of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and if we we're going to say the bell sequence is the most important sequence of the film and what the whole film builds to, I that sequence in particular, I think, is about imposter syndrome before anybody had a term for it. Sure. I mean, it definitely is, there is kind of a, you know, a, a fake it till you make it mentality with a lot of the people in the movie. Um I mean, you could even, you could even, uh, I, I don't know what the character's name is specifically, but the, the, the shitty prince who's, who's basically given permission for the town to be sacked. Um, yeah. The grand prince's brother. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, he's kind of got it. He doesn't really yeah. know what it is to, to lead or, or be princely. Instead, he's, he's, he's shifted responsibility to the, the, to, to, the Tatars. I don't know if I might be saying that wrong too. No, 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 you're not at all. They, uh, and, I, and I love, the thing that I love the most about that sequence is the shame. We can feel his shame at what he's done. I yeah. really feel the weight of it on his face. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, 
I mean, I, I see what you're saying about imposter syndrome, and I agree with you that it's definitely in the movie. But, I, man, I don't know that I could say this movie is about one thing, which I, I think in, in certain I think some movies cases, that's that's a detriment in this one. It's it's not. It is what makes it as good as it is. Well, that's I think I think what we both loved about Stalker so much is that this film I'm sorry, it's not an easy experience. It's not going to give you anything. You have to. This film, I think Tarkovsky was sacrificing so much and being so bold and brave and open that he's demanding that you do the same. You can't enjoy this film. I'm giving you something, so you can't enjoy this film unless you give me something back. You have to be able to be open and, and willing to let this thing wash over you and, and allow it to, to lay you bare as it does itself. Now I will I will say that uh, I wasn't quite sure, you know I, you know I didn't know exactly what I was getting into when I turned the movie on. Um, yeah, no doubt. I definitely try, especially if I'm unfamiliar with the movie, to only do so much research beforehand that doesn't give into plot or um, you know what makes the movie great. You know I really try to stay away from that until after I've seen it. Um, and I think because I'd seen Stalker and I think because, uh, I know enough of the plot of Solaris and kind of what that's about that I was expecting, uh, Andre Rublev to be more, I, I'm going to overgeneralize this, but more of a thriller, more like, I don't know what's going to happen next kind of mentality. And while I can still stay, and while I can still say that, I didn't know what was going to happen next in this movie. Um, I think I, I inadvertently put it into a different type of film that it, it turned out to be. Now, it, it didn't ultimately hinder my watching of the movie, but I, I think I was putting Tarkovsky into a different, um, a different, like, oh, he's only making these kinds of movies, like very open kind of sci-fi thriller things. I mean, and I knew this was about a real person that existed, but I, I didn't, I wasn't expecting what I got. No, oh, absolutely, and I'm I'm so thrilled again of all the of all the movies that we've done so far. I mean, I just I can't wait to keep going on this Tarkovsky journey with you. I I do think now though I do think that we now have to wait until episode one sixty four at least as as a show to talk about the next Tarkovsky. There's something now where it's like we don't want to. I can't burn. I don't want to burn out on him. And we only have two other movies in the book from him, so we gotta and we gotta pace ourselves with Tarkovsky. I I I believe we do as well. I mean, it's it's a bummer to think of it in those terms, but yeah, you're right. You don't want to you don't want to squander this. You don't want to burn out on it. And I I do definitely think with our ranking of certain directors, you know, once we once we've done the four in the book, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to rank all of Tarkovsky. Yeah. Yeah, and and it is just seven, right? It's um, it it's I, seven. It's seven features. Uh, I think a documentary, and then maybe three or four shorts was all he did. And there, like Kubrick, there's a whole list of other shit that he would have done had he lived. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, so we've I, done, we've covered unsung heroes. I I didn't mention a favorite shot just because I'm so sort of ginger you were talking about that smooth one through the the church at the beginning sequence uh as we're as we keep thinking about the bell sequence i do think i have a favorite shot and it's when the bell finally rings and the pull the crane up from the very tense 
emotionally and physically drained Boriska and the fact that, hey, if this thing didn't, doesn't ring, I mean, the Italian diplomats that are there with the Grand Prince are talking about, this boy will die if this thing doesn't ring. Yeah. He literally, his life is literally on the line for this bell. That crane up, the relief. Oh, man, it was like the end of... It's like the end of something like Locke or the end of something like uh, uh, 127 Hours, you know, that's where, where he does finally get out of from underneath that rock. The, uh, there were tears in my eyes just at the relief. It's great. It's great visual storytelling, right? It's it's, you know, and, and it's I it's it's a it's a compliment to the film that so much is is riding on whether or not this bell makes a sound. It's just, it's crazy. I I love that segment. I just, I can't get over how good that bell sequence is. It is now, genuinely one of the greatest pieces of film ever. So I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to end on a negative. So I'm going to say one thing and then we'll have to say something else good. I do All think right. that the, uh, the epilogue, um, I think the epilogue, like the 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 moment in two thousand and one where they're going through space, is overly long. I think it. I do think it's a bit masturbatory. Um, I think I, I. You know, I think you can cut that in half. Yeah, I I agree. It, but I I also understand Tarkovsky's sentiment where he said I wanted to give people enough time to just sit and be and allow this thing into the hard cut to color. You know, just to let you have have these icons as they appear, and to to really think about the man and his life and his works, and again his relationship to all these other things in his life. I I I appreciate the sentiment, but I do have to agree it is it is a little indulgent. Yeah, yeah. I I think we could have done the the same thing with maybe three minutes instead of the. I don't even know how long it is. Maybe eight. Yeah, it, is it, it seven to eight minutes? It's uh, something like that. Yeah, it definitely took it. It took a while. Um, yeah, although yeah, I do love, I do love, I, I hope it's in other movies of his, the, the going from either black and white or in stalker that, that sepia color to just that like lush color, just boom. It just fucking smacks you on the face. I love it. I love that so much. Uh, and I, I do have to say, I, even though I, I think the 183 minute, the three hour cut is the best cut. I am really happy that I saw the longer one as well. The passion according to Andre, cause I, I wasn't taking no- notes so much during that one. I was just allowing the experience to wash over me. And so I was able to sort of divine things that I missed in the first viewing and, and really allow it to, to wash over me. So I, I will, I'll end by saying, if you have the chance, watch both. I think, I think Robert Byrd made a great argument for, you know, there being things to value in both cuts, but certainly I think this 183 minute cut is definitely the way to go. Yeah. And it so, looks, Oh my God. So good. Oh, the, the restoration. I, I can't say, I can't say enough about it. It is one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's great. It looks really, really great with that restoration. So one of the things, uh, to just a final bullet point on that is one of the things that I caught in that second go round is on the bell. There is the image of Saint George slaying the dragon embossed into it, and that is the only icon that we see. Uh, Rublev handle is the Saint George and the dragon one, and it's not even one of his, but he's cleaning it. Yeah, I don't. I like the I like that little piece of connected tissue that that icon will come back and be a part of the bell. I don't know exactly what the symbolism is there. Maybe I'll be able to divine that with more viewings and more research. But it was just one of those nice little 
bullet points, a nice little piece of connective tissue that I'm, I don't know if you caught that in your viewing, but it certainly, certainly again, drives home the fact that Tarkovsky films are not one-time views. There's no way that you will be able to appreciate everything it has to offer with one go-around. I agree. I agree. So, I, I mean, we could spend hours, but I think, I think we're there. I know. Um, I think we could spend the the running time of the film discussing it, and maybe more so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I, I I mean, there are sections of the film we didn't talk about. There are characters of the film we didn't talk about. But I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't know how the, much How much does your heart bleed for Daroshka? I mean, uh, uh, yes. Like, yeah. I didn't even talk about the moment where she braids the dead woman's hair. Oh my god, that just that killed me. Yeah. Yeah. See, so there there's, you go. There's, right there. there's too much. There's yeah. there's too much to talk about. So we won't bore you with a three hour episode. But so, Ian, if, do you think yes. that Andre Rublev should be in the book? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Next silly question, right? It's <laughs> oh man, this film is one of those things where it's such a it's such a shitty, arrogant sort of pretentious thing to say but i i genuinely don't think you can call yourself a cinephile like i i feel like i am a newly born cinephile for having tarkovsky in this this film in my life i don't think you can say that you are well okay i shouldn't generalize like that but i would urge people (laughs) if you do believe that you are a cinephile add this to your to your repertoire of films that you have seen and and can talk about and love and and hopefully appreciate in the same ways that we are I mean, yeah, my my answer is yes, too. And I, I guess the last thing I'll say is just to piggyback right off of that, which is, you know, again, part of why me and you are doing this is not just talk about the films that we already like, which I, which I do get a kick out of a lot. Or oh, that's fun to do. Yeah. Or to bitch about movies that I, we don't think are very good. But it is to discover movies that have a genuine auteur craftsmanship to them where it's, you can just see this and go, wow, the person who made this movie really knew what they were doing. And again, when we get to the next two Tarkovsky's, I don't know, but I look forward to whether it's Solaris or the mirror of getting to the next one. Yeah. I, I can't wait. I might, I might have to pressure you into making it a little sooner than 164. Cause I, I don't know if, I don't know if I can wait that long. Like I said, I'm, I'm, it's a two, it's a double-edged sword. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to squander it. Like don't get to it too quickly. Cause yeah. once it's gone, it's gone. But at the same time, like, I don't, I, I can't wait that long. Yeah. Um, so that's what we think about Andre Rublev, but of course we want to know what you think. So please hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter and let us know, uh, what you think of the movie or, um, you know, if you have a preferred version or Tarkovsky in general, we'd love to get into a back and forth with you. Um, you can find us on Apple podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher, Google play and all of the great places where you can find podcasts. Um, and starting next week, we are going to do back to back. I don't even know how to describe it. We're going to, we're going to have our spouses on the show um, talking about two yeah, radically cr- different films. I'm very excited about that. I'm, I'm happy that Melissa is finally going to get some justice when it comes to, to film musicals after how I butchered poor West Side Story. Yeah, I, I'm sure she will let you have it. Um, so uh, please- It's going to be fun. <laughs> I will sit back so- and take my punishment. <laughs> so please come back next week as we talk about our next musical. Uh, but until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. 